From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. The podcast is sponsored by City Lights Brewing Company, an award-winning brewery and taproom set in the historic Milwaukee Gas Company buildings right on the banks of the Menominee River. As you know, I'm a home brewer and an investor in another brewery, which gives me a little more insight than the average beer drinker. I was impressed by the quality of the team and more importantly, their selection of innovative craft beers. You can enjoy a pint in the taproom overlooking the brew house or take in some fresh air in the relaxing beer garden set on the river. They also have a great beer-inspired food menu. Please visit citylightsbrewing.com for more details. Did you ever wonder what it would be like to follow in the footsteps of someone that many people consider a legend? You can imagine that it might be hard to live up to the standard they set, and even more difficult yet if you were his son or his grandson. Well, I got the chance to talk with two people who are doing just that. John Burke, the CEO of Trek Bicycles, and Richie Burke, the president of GoGetIt Media and Marketing. We discussed the challenges of running their businesses, as well as the privileges and pressures of following in the footsteps of Dick Burke, otherwise known as the big guy and founder of Trek. On today's episode, we dive headfirst into the concept that innovation is fundamentally about people. We get some personal insight from a father and son about the different paths they chose. In one case, following a legend, and in the other case, choosing not to join the family business and instead making his own path. We also discuss the benefit of being a privately held company, their definitions of leadership, and what the future holds for both of their companies. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. John, Richie, thank you for being an Innovators on Tap today. It's uh, great to have you both here. I was reading some stuff. I know your dad once told you the last name gets you in the door and the rest is up to you. And obviously you got in the door and have had great success leading Trek. Do you think it was easier or harder for you as the founder's son on your journey to become the CEO? I think it was, uh, I think it was easier. The easy answer would be it was harder, but uh, it was easier. And the reason it was easier is because I had such a good relationship with him and that he and I could talk about all the issues in the business and because I think we had a good relationship from the time I graduated school and I started at Trek. Trek wasn't doing so well. I started in some really miserable times. And that created an opportunity for me as somebody young in the business. And it also, because there were so few players on the bench, I think I was I turned into a necessity for him because I was the only guy sitting there. The fact that the company was struggling actually created an opportunity you might not have gotten as quickly otherwise. For sure. Yeah, and it probably let him take a little more risk with his son than in those roles. Yeah, you know, it was a big, you know, he put me in some big positions. I was 24 and he put me in charge of sales and marketing. You know, it wasn't that big of a company then, but still it was a big risk because it was it was doing really poorly. But he saw what kind of potential he thought I had and I had a really good team of people and we had a lot of fun. 
So Richie, I'm curious. So did you ever try to get it in the door at Trek? Or if you didn't, why did you pursue a different path other than following in the family business? With me um, being from this family and having it be such a big company, I felt the need. I wanted to go create my own identity. For me, I think growing up, I was kind of known as, oh, you're the president's son of Trek. The time that JB went into the company when it was in the mid 80s and it was struggling and it was his dad's business would have been more appealing situation for me to go into. You went to Marquette where your grandfather went and obviously he's pretty well known there as someone who's instrumental in, in doing some amazing things like the Burke Scholars and the Trinity Fellows. Your dad took over the family business and has made it you know, even more successful, a globally well-known brand. Do you ever feel pressure having the Burke last name? Yes, yeah. <laughs> and how do you deal with that? There's some good things and some bad things. I think growing up, you know, I knew we had a lot of resources. I got to, I mean, my dad's been a great role model just seeing him growing up and how hard he works and also how much he gives back and how generous he is to people. My grandpa did the same thing. I didn't get to see him work that much. Um, to me, he was just my grandfather and I had that relationship with him. Unfortunately, he passed away in 08, which was my first year at Marquette. Serves as motivation for me to start my company and grow it and try and do something big. I think the downside of that is it's hard not to compare yourself. And when your grandpa started something that's turned into a billion dollar company, that's obviously very hard and very rare. You know, I was the CEO of Cree for a long time. And one of the things I struggled with is running a company. It takes a ton of your time and it puts quite a strain on company or family and trying to find that balance. And John, you have this perspective as both the son and then as the father and Richie as the son, I'm just curious for both of you really is, can you share some perspective? Cause I'm not sure a lot of people fully appreciate what that, that tension is and, and how you have to work through it. You know, my father was, was really good about the business and the family's um, participation in the business. And it was basically if it's your life and if you want to work at Trek, your last name will get you in the door. And then it's kind of up to you as to, you know, how far you make it. And I think that was a really good philosophy. And he really kind of separated out business and family when it came to family. It wasn't a positive for you and it wasn't a negative in his eyes. You know, he thought, you know, if, if you were a great parent or if you um, work somewhere else, you know, that was great. Live your life. And, you know, one of the things I saw with Richie early on is I thought it would be really great if Richie worked at Trek. <laughs> and I told Richie that. And uh, maybe I told Richie that a little uh, too strongly, but, um, you know, I thought that would be a good idea for Richie. You know, over time, I, ch I totally changed um, my thought on that to where the big guy was, which is basically, it's your life. You should do what you want to do. And, you know, I see all the stuff that he's doing now, and I go, wow, that's really cool. And I'm really proud of what he does. So I think there's always a tension where, you know, your dad and you saw your grandfather, they have these, you know, these big jobs, right? And, and there's a tension also to, do you feel like there was ever time when you were giving up some of your time with your dad to the company or vice versa? Because that's one of the things I struggled with a lot was, is how do you balance those two things? Because running a company can easily become all encompassing if you let it. Well, I think as far as Growing up and our family went, like, obviously my dad was gone a lot on business, but he was also my 
head basketball coach, you know. So he was he was he was always there when I needed him, even though he was gone on business a lot. And again, that kind of goes back to I think he instilled that work ethic in me, seeing him doing that, and he was always there when I needed him. So even though I was super busy growing this business, he was definitely still there as a very supportive parent. Let me shift a little bit. I know you're a fan of Apple and Steve Jobs and some of the work they did there. And I know in a previous interview, you mentioned that the advice Tim Cook got from Steve Jobs was the concept of not putting yourself in a box. How do you, as you lead Trek, get people to be willing to get comfortable with this idea of of pushing the limits or breaking down the box when at the same time, they're probably more apt to want to be there? I think the first thing you need to do is you need to ask. You need to ask people to get outside the box and you need to really let people know that you have a lot of confidence in their skills, that you don't want them just to see X amount. You think they're, they're, they can do 5X, they can do 10X, or they can do 30X. Um, that's how great things get done. And when you sit with a person, you go, well, that's nice, but I think you should maybe expand your horizons here and, and think outside the box then you're asking them to do something. And I I think that's the first thing is just to ask people. I think the second thing is, is there's a flywheel effect. As soon as you start getting it to go in a couple of different areas, then you can use those as internal case studies and you can let people know, this is what we're doing over here. This is what we're doing over here. Tom did this, Sally did that. Rethink this thing. And I think that's the biggest job of a leader is to get people to, to really push the boundaries. One of the things I sense in those situations, though, is there's this, they're often fighting their own fear of failing. And how do you, how do you help people think about that when you're, when you're trying to coach them through that piece of it? I think the biggest thing is it's okay to fail. I really don't care if we fail. We've held people up and said, you know, we took a good swing over here. It didn't work. So now we're going over there. There's an old story about uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, Jr., at 64, um, asked permission from his cousin, the president, to land in the first wave on D-Day. And at 64, he landed there and he gets out of the boat with a bunch of 18-year-olds and they were a mile and a half off course. And they were all panicking. What should we do? All the plans are rubbish. And he took his cane and he pounded on the sand and he said, the war begins from here. And so after you make a mistake, it doesn't matter. What are we doing next? And I think focusing on what we do next is key. I want to go back to this idea of not being afraid of failure and, and willing to take risk. Is there an example, and it's really a question for both of you, is there an example you can think of where, you know, you had one of those failures and it kind of became an aha, okay, I really, this is my biggest mistake and then this is what I learned from it that sticks out in your mind? I think my biggest failures may have been being too hesitant to go all in when I thought I should have, because I was afraid maybe what other people would have thought or that it meant might not work. So I think not moving fast enough in certain directions. And then I think other mistakes would have been, I've made some bad hiring decisions, which ended quickly, but I think we've also kept people on too long that maybe weren't a good fit or that we didn't need to. And you know, then they leave and you see that the company's a better place and it would have, would have been better. And I'm a very non-confrontational person. I don't enjoy doing that. So those were all learning experiences. So it's interesting you say that. So when I got asked that question, it was really a people one, which was, you may even have the right person, but, and John, I'm sure you've seen this as businesses change and grow. 
the needs and skill sets change. And not everyone makes that evolution. And, you know, in, in hindsight, I waited too long to make some of those changes. And I, I think I justified it out of, I want to be loyal or give someone another chance. But at the end of the day, it wasn't good for myself or the company or the person. And so I'm curious, do you have an experience that you would put up there as kind of one of those big failure moments that you learned something from? I have uh, quite a few. <laughs> so, I mean, it gets back, I mean, everything ultimately gets back to people. And so, I mean, there have been critical points in Trek's history where um, some people changes were made and it turned out really well. But if you take a look back as a leader, I should have moved quicker than I did. And, you know, those are the, the biggest regrets I have in my time has been I didn't move fast enough on some people issues. We have a saying here, if you think you have a people problem, you have a people problem. You've said in the past that the best definition of leadership you've heard is leadership is the ability to make the dream a reality at the grassroots level. And that leadership is also here's the vision and I'm going to convince people where we need to go. How did you come about shaping that definition? Are there some experiences that stand out that kind of got you there? I've said this before, but I went to Richie's graduation and um, David McCullough, the American historian, was the graduation speaker. And he gave a speech on reading, which might seem terribly boring, but it was incredible. And his main point was readers are leaders and you are what you read. And so I read a lot of history and I like to read a lot of biographies. You know, you read about great leaders. And I think time and time again, really great leaders make the dream a reality at the grassroots level. If you take a look at JFK and you take a look at the early 60s and he says, we're going to send a man to the moon and return him to earth before the end of the decade, guess what? And that's what happened. I mean, that's, that's amazing leadership. And I think there are times in Trek's history where, you know, you've had to say, this is this is where we're going. This is why we're going there. And, and you know, you build the team around that and, and people respond. You guys both seem comfortable with changing things up, what you did in your business and the things you've done at Trek when you get stuck. Most people get stuck and they stay stuck. What is it about how you think of things that you think helps you get unstuck or not get stuck in the first place? You know, one of the things um, we did at Trek, we were not having... Uh, some good years in the late 90s. And somebody suggested that I hire a new manufacturing guy and because I wasn't very good at it. And uh, so I went ahead and I did that. And I hired a guy, his name was Tim Callahan, and uh, he had worked at GE and a couple other places. And he came in here and he went into the factories and he brought in Kaizen, which is continuous improvement, the Toyota way, and eliminate waste. And you're always trying to do better, always. And uh, he and I were riding the Trek 100 a year later. I'm like, you know, Tim, you've done an amazing job. You know, inventories are down, production's way up. I mean, you're just killing it. And he's like, yeah, it's worked out really good. He says, you know what? He goes, there's a lot of companies who introduce lean and continuous improvement in the factories. He goes, there's very few that can do it in the office. Wow, I go, that's really interesting. He goes, we should start to do continuous improvement events in the office. And so we did that and we really started to um, create that culture within Trek that everything can be improved. And that went from the factories into the office, and then we've taken it to our customers. But this whole company has an overall belief that every single thing we do can be a lot better than it is, and we never stop. So do you ever worry, though, that 
some of the techniques of Kaizen and continuous improvement, which clearly have a distinct, they almost always yield an improvement in a continuous way. How do you balance that with when you want to think really innovatively? I think the overall philosophy of you're never done, everything can be better, that's the key. So whatever we do here, you know, if we put on a, um, if we put on a customer event, we bring 1,500 people into Madison for Trek World, um, we'll sit down and we'll go over the entire, we'll go over the entire program and say, new, better, different. What are all the steps along the customer journey and how could we make this better? And then one is one of the most successful things we've ever done. And then one year, some guy says towards the end of the meeting, he goes, you know what? One of the customers said they came here and most of the products they saw, we had shipped to them in the last two months. And they got most of the benefit out of all the business seminars. And so here's this amazing program that we run for 25 years. And we just said, we're done. Next year, all we're doing is business seminars. And that's all we're going to do. We're not going to show any product. And we're a product company. So that is, that's the kind of innovation that we do is we're not afraid to take chances. We'll throw everything out. But we start with the basic philosophy that everything we do can be better. I love everything JB just said. I, I think the best things happen when you're stuck or when you have your back against the wall because you have to change. So that's, that's when we've, you know, rebounded our best is in that environment. And I think of the times where things were going well and I took my foot off the gas pedal a little bit. And if I pushed harder at those points in time, we'd be farther along right now. Or if I made the changes when I had to make the changes, I try, I try and keep it. So we set very high goals and I usually don't hit them. Um, <laughs> but, but I always work at hitting them. And I think I'm farther along that way than setting, you know, attainable goals that we could hit, but I'd rather just shoot really high. Cause then you almost always have your back against the wall and you need to keep pushing. Uh, this was actually a debate in my boardroom, um, which was, you know, you guys set these really high goals and you miss them a lot of the time. And I said, well, so would you rather me set a much lower goal and hit it or beat it by a little or set this high goal? And even if I miss it, I'm still double where I would have been otherwise. And at one point I actually got the advice. I think it's sometimes better for you to hit the goal you sign up for, which you know, probably brings me to a topic that I want to ask about, which is maybe the difference between being running a public company that's judged quarter to quarter and a private company. And John, you said that uh, you have the largest employee stock ownership program in Wisconsin. And, you know, we had one at Cree as well, which was for public companies. But when you were asked about, would you ever go public? You said, I don't need the money and I don't need the headaches. You know, that quote came from my father and I was in numerous meetings with him with bankers and he always had the same reply as I don't need the money and I don't need the headaches. Um, I think one of the reasons why Trek's been successful is we look at the long term is we make long term decisions. And, you know, even, you know, if you're having a couple of years that aren't where you want them to, um, we keep investing in the business, we keep playing the long game. And, you know, it's worked out really well for us. And, you don't have that public market where all of a sudden you're going to miss the quarter and we're going to have a bunch of people running around here doing stupid things to make the quarter and make some some person happy looking at a computer screen. I think we've made the shareholders really happy over the last uh, over the last 20 years and I think we're going to make them really happy over the next 20 years. But we're going to do it based on making 
good long-term decisions for the company, for the shareholders, for the employees, and for the community. You know, uh, having survived 65 earnings calls as a public company CEO, <laughs> and yes, I was counting at least after about 40, um, there's no doubt in my mind that you're able to invest in your business in ways we couldn't. Even though Cree was an R&D company, we did a lot of long-term things. At the end of the day, you're being judged quarterly by shareholders who frankly do care about what happens in the short term. I want to switch again and, and go back to something I, I read about. You have a decision-making process that's been described as a love of whiteboards. Yeah. And he says you get input from everyone in the room on one whiteboard and then move to the next to solve the problem. And you mentioned how you having smart people in the room is key. So I'm curious, how do you go about identifying people at Trek that you think can take on these roles that have to be more innovative? You judge by their history. Um, you judge by how successful they've been or how they've acted or um, how adaptable they are. And, you know, how, you know, one of the things that we push here at Trek is, are you open to new ideas? You know, two, two key things, you know, if you take a look, I think the most creative moments are in a room with a whiteboard. Give me a whiteboard, some markers, always different colors, and give me a great group of people and you can change the world. But the people you need in that room are you need people who are, um, open-minded. You need people who can generate a lot of ideas and you need people who are positive. And if you've got those characteristics, um, you, you can do a lot of great stuff. I'm curious, Richie, how about, how do you go about trying to find people for your business that you think can have this creativity? And, and you have a you know, your business is younger. So how do you, when you're sitting across the table from that person that's coming in to interview for a job, how are you trying to figure out if they're going to have the, the skill set to, to succeed in your business, especially on the more creative, innovative side? Obviously, I have a creative company, so most of my employees are creative. So even just looking at what they've done in the past, looking at their portfolio, looking on social media, that's a very good tool that I use a lot of. Usually you could see if you have some mutual friends and I talk to them and actually get a an answer you may not get from the references they list, you know, are they very adaptable? Cause that's important in a startup. Cause yeah, we're always trying to change and get better. And people who are set in a certain way aren't probably aren't going to be successful and haven't been successful in our environment. People who can put up with a certain level of chaos, dealing with our clients and dealing with the change going on and being able to, you know, jump around and still be very effective. And then people who continually learn and try and get better. I'm really interested in your whiteboard approach and how you get people to engage in this. I found some interesting research about the value of conflict. And one of the things it said is that in a brainstorming session, they actually have tested this idea of whether are all ideas good and you just take them all, or should you actually let people debate them? And it's called the debate condition. And there's actually been psychology studies that say that if you introduce the debate condition, you often get even better answers because what happens is when someone is challenged, it actually puts their brain into an even higher gear to come up with better answers. So I'm curious at Trek, is there any challenging allowed or is it kind of every idea is a good idea? How do you manage that tension? <laughs> it's, it's not every, every idea is a good idea, but put myself in charge of being the facilitator because I kind of have attention deficit disorder and it keeps me in the game the whole time. And it also really lets everybody in the room know that I care and I hear you. So when they say something and I write it down, they know that 
that their ideas count. You were mentioning your role as a facilitator of these meetings. Do you consider yourself an innovator or does that responsibility of having to manage the company, are you really just a facilitator of the innovators? How do you think about that? You know, when, when people think innovation, they naturally think of product. And I would say um, I'm really innovative on the business side. On the product side, meh, okay. But I can, I've got a good way of getting ideas out of people and I've got a good, good way of how do we get that done. On the business side, um, I've been able to work with a lot of really good people and figure out how we can be innovative on the business side. And that's a part that I really enjoy about Trek. We do some really innovative things on the business side that none of our competitors would do. Richie, how about yourself? Do you consider yourself to be an, an innovator or innovative? Yeah, I think I've had to be just, you know, navigating the whole startup landscape and always pivoting my company. And I look out, you know, what JV's done too, and just looking at outside sources and always trying to get better and finding new ways to do that. I think that in itself is pretty innovative. So I read a story about how things were back in 1984 when you joined the company. <laughs> and I believe you said the company had grown fast and like many of family business, it outgrew its ability to manage it. What were some of those challenges that the business faced in terms of outgrowing its ability to manage it? And then what did you guys do to close those gaps? I came home after college, got my wisdom teeth pulled, and then next day I showed up at Trek. And Trek was, it was uh, May 1984, and uh, Trek was riding high. And I joined the company, and uh, almost simultaneously the company began a 18-month collapse. And I was there to watch the whole thing, and it was the greatest education um, one could ever have. And my father owned the business, and he didn't run the business day to day. Um, but uh, the key was um, he he came out and he f took out the top managers, and he took over running the business. And you know he was really interesting because he came out here, and I'll never forget when he came out here, and uh, he just spent about a month just walking around asking questions. And he asked a lot of questions. And he was the ultimate listener. Um, I've never met anyone who could listen as well as my father. And uh, he asked customers a lot of questions. He asked employees a lot of questions. And then he simplified it. He said, you know, we're going to build quality products at competitive values, and we're going to deliver them on time. And we're going to create a good environment for the employees and the customers. And that was it. And it sounds so simple but it was so effective because we weren't doing any of those. So, so for someone out there who's listening, who works in a company where they're feeling frustrated, they might be feeling they're in that moment. What do you think happens to a company? How does it miss those basic principles? I think poor leadership, you know, especially you have to be out of touch with your customers to miss that. And I know when we miss things when we miss things too often, you know, we, the answers were there. We missed them. But I think, you know, one of the things, you know, for people who are out there and, and they're working for these companies, it gets back to the, to the Steve Jobs lesson is, is most people have themselves in a box and they're capable of much more. And most people don't want to get out of that box because they don't have the confidence. My word to everybody here is be a player. Um, you know, if you see something, do something about it. You know, the worst thing is when you know what the answers are and you just sit there and you just watch, you watch it. And, uh, you know, I always have preferred to do something about it. 
when uh, when Cree was going well, I was always worried when we were recruiting because I think when a business is having a lot of success, a lot of people want to come work there. And my worry is, is what you get are fans. And that what you actually need to run the business are people that want to play the game. They want to go out and take that next challenge. And for me, it was really hard. And I still don't think I ever got it quite right of trying to figure out that person sitting across from me really wanted to be a player or they just wanted to be on the winning team and say they worked there. Any thoughts how you try to distinguish that? You know, one of the best things here at Trek is um, the longevity of people who are here. I mean, we've, we've got players who've been here in the good times and the bad times, and, uh, and it's just an awesome team. And they're here to mentor the next generation of leaders that are coming up. And, you know, we just have, I've never seen a company with so many awesome people and so many people coming up behind them. On the product side, I just came back from Europe and I noticed that the e-bike has really made strides there. Two questions. Well, how does Trek see the e-bike as part of your business going forward? And the second part is, why do you think the e-bike hasn't caught on in the U.S. yet? So I think a couple of things is one, um, the e-bike is catching on in the U.S. It's it's at its early stages. It's about 10 years behind Europe. But if you take a look and you go back to 15 and 16, e-bike sales doubled in 17. They doubled in 18. They doubled in 19. They doubled, I think, in 20. They'll double again. all of a sudden, every party I go to, when I used to go to parties 20 years ago, everybody wanted to know about a carbon road bike. What should I get? And every party I go to now, everybody wants to know, should I get an e-bike? So e-bikes are happening in the U.S. In Europe, um, it's off the charts. I mean, there's more e-bike business being done in the Benelux than there is regular bike business. The second largest mountain bike market in the world is Germany. Above 3,000 euros, there's more electric mountain bikes being sold than regular mountain bikes. Um, Mountain bikes aren't just for people over 50. They're for people who want to go further. They're for people who commute. They're for people who want to keep up with their spouse. I haven't seen a product since the iPhone. When, When the iPhone first came out and people said, look, you can take pictures with this, and then you hit this button and you can send it. And people go, no way. And if you take a look at e-bikes, people go and they test ride an e-bike and they come back and every single person has a huge smile. You send 100 out and 100 come back with a huge smile. What other product do you know that does that? Richie, as you think about your business, you know, it's still relatively young, but technology is changing every day and the business model is moving. As you look out, what is the problem or the innovation challenge that you and, and your business do you think are going to face here over the next five years? Well, I think what you just listed is that everything's changing so fast is a large benefit to companies like ours who could, for example, just pivot right into starting a podcast and offering it to companies in a matter of a year or so where there's so many, I think, bloated agencies out there who bill much more than they should and they move a lot slower than they should. And I think that's an advantage for a smaller company like ours who can win against them on those level and companies really like working with us and i think as long as we move fast and stay on top of everything and don't get comfortable we'll be good so as we finish up what's one piece of advice for someone out there who's looking to start their own business or who's in a company facing some innovation challenges that you would give them and maybe a different way to think about things that could help them out i would say people starting a business um 
they need to be extremely excited and passionate about it and patient as well because things definitely do take time they usually take more time money energy to get it to where you think it's going to be i think people really really uh you know overestimate what they can do in a in a day a week a month a year two years and but underestimate what they can do long term so i think that plays an important factor john how about you yeah i'd stick with um you know we call it seeing something bigger than the barn and and that is you can do much more than you think you can so if you're thinking about starting a new business or if you're thinking about whether you ought to go talk to your boss about here are the five things we really ought to be doing um you should do that and you know i always one of the things we always like to talk about is focusing on things you can control and too many people are in a situation that maybe they don't think things are going as well as they could but if you write down a list of here are all the things outside of my control there's also a list of things inside of your control and if you focus on that list i always think add as much value as you can and the more value you add to a company you'll be well rewarded whether you believe it or not you might be rewarded with great experiences you might be rewarded with a new job you might be rewarded compensation wise whether you work at that company long term or not, you will be rewarded. Get in the game. Play. That would be my advice. Well, your advice, both your advice is phenomenal. And uh, I'm excited for the people to get to hear that. And uh, I just want to thank both of you for taking time to do this today. It's uh, I've learned a lot. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, I met your dad and your grandfather a couple times when I shared on the board. And I would just say that uh, from the little I knew about him, I'm sure he'd be just incredibly proud of what you guys have accomplished and not only in business, but what you guys continue to do to help others be successful. I think, uh, you know, he set a bar for me watching him from the outside of giving back that I think has been so impressive. And uh, you guys have continued that tradition. And, uh, you know, we're, we're lucky to have you guys as, as part of the community and doing a bunch of amazing things. As I was preparing for this today, and, and now that I've been through the interview, I think your family is an amazing example of the Marquette slogan of what it means to be the difference. So thanks for everything you guys do. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Chuck. Thanks to Richie and John Burke for being on the show and for the team at Trek Bikes for giving us a tour before the interview. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it insightful. It is interesting to note that both Richie and John mentioned not dealing with people issues fast enough as one of their biggest mistakes. I had the same experience at Cree and ultimately learned that it wasn't good for the employee or the company if we kept someone on the team that wasn't contributing at the level needed to make the business successful. As they say at Trek, if you think you might have a people problem, you have a people problem. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey and developing your own innovator spirit. Let's go change the world. <laughs>